This is Abby, and you are listening to Upzoned. everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news that touches the Strong Towns conversation each week, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Newsham, a planner in Kansas City, and today I'm joined again by my friend Chuck. We are on a roll because we have been doing this every week. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are on a roll, baby. This is what happens when I'm not traveling, though, and it Travel will kick in here soon. I'm going to Alaska and San Antonio back to back. So I'm like gone for 10 days straight. But um, yeah, this has been a nice respite from on the road. And it means you and I get to chat every week. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. I'm glad that mm-hmm. it's like the boys are back in town. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. No, it is. <laughs> um, so we've got kind of a fun article today uh, published in Bloomberg by David Zipper. It is entitled, The Town That Took Downtown Renewal to the Next Level. And I just realized that that's a pun. (laughs) And I didn't catch that. It is a pun. And, you know, spoiler alert, when you sent me this article, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad we're going to get to talk about a happy story of a great city who did wonderful things. And then I read this story and I'm like, oh, please tell me this is not true. So, Yeah. yeah, it's a pun. I thought it was going to be happy too. So, and it turned out not to be. We we intentionally chose this one because we both were fooled Wanted to be by positive. the headline. Yeah, we we're like, let's celebrate a place that's doing great work. And then uh yeah, they're going to take downtown renewal to the next level. To the next <laughs> level. Um and by the way, if you actually go to the article, which will be linked in the show notes, there's the photo that they show on at like the beginning of the article is this like happy, all these people. It's a super exciting. I know. It looks like a successful <laughs> project. Um, so kind of a bummer. I was it really bummed me out reading this article. That's okay though. Yeah, our kind of project too, right? Because there's tent, there's street tents and there's street mm-hmm. life, and there's like all this stuff going on. And I'm like, all right, super cool. Now that I'm scrolling up and looking at the the next quote unquote the next level, um, yeah, the next level. It's kind of, okay, it's kind of breaking my heart. So you're gonna have to yeah. tell the story. Yeah. So let's fill people in here. So this article talks about this little town called Morristown, Tennessee. It is the county seat of Hamblin County, located in the Tennessee Valley of East Tennessee and home to around 30,000 residents today. It's actually not too far from our friends over at Urban 3 who are headquartered in Asheville, North Carolina. It looks like Asheville is probably one of the closest uh, larger cities in the region. Um, Just for context, if people know where Asheville is. This town of Morristown made a very significant and unique investment in itself during the 1960s, where a Sky Mart was constructed along four blocks of its main street. And if you are confused about what a Sky Mart is, as I was when I read the article, it's basically an elevated sidewalk that is located directly above the street level sidewalks. So kind of like a like a terrace system. Um, it has multiple bridges that allow pedestrians to cross from one <laughs> Abby, side to the other. Yes. If you, if you are confused about this, 
as I was because it makes no sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're doing it's great. Keep going. Yeah, no, it's basically like if you can picture how a mall is organized and what that looks like without a roof. So picture that kind of structure. Um, essentially, the second level sidewalks provide additional storefront access to businesses on the second level. And it also, you know, a good part of that is that it provides shade and protection from weather elements for the ground level sidewalks. Um, so that's kind of a good thing. But this was obviously a very radical design at the time. I would say it's probably a pretty radical design now if somebody were to do it. Back in the 1960s when it was constructed, it actually attracted national attention. People traveled to see this. It kickstarted a burst of local economic activity, but unfortunately it was really only construction oriented. It was a very temporary surge of jobs. Um, today, according to the author, the Sky Mart is mostly desolate with many vacant spaces along it. Rents are actually significantly higher for the ground level retail space than for second level frontages where vacancies run at around 25%. According to the town's mayor, the Sky Mart didn't pan out because people didn't really want to walk up walkways to get to the sidewalks up above and merchants didn't want to really climb the stairs every time somebody was upstairs. And though this unique structure has become somewhat of a symbol for the city because it is very much like a landmark, um, it unfortunately didn't save the downtown as was expected so many years ago. So I think this is kind of a fascinating story uh, about attempts during the 1960s at downtown revitalization. They obviously were doing this in response to uh, suburbanization, where businesses were going to shopping centers. They were pulled by the allure of having large parking lots because everybody was beginning to, you know, be driving at that time. Um, and and the downtowns were really having a difficult time maintaining their their business center. My initial thought actually went to this like issue of supply and demand because. Like if your demand for retail space is decreasing in the downtown area, why the heck would you double the supply? Because that's essentially what they did. They constructed another layer of sidewalks and retail frontages, and it didn't do anything to necessarily change the demand. There was this like temporary surge of interest because it was an interesting structure and project and got attention. But as a long-term strategy, once that allure kind of fades away and, and people go on with their lives and get back to, nor to normal, that's a huge investment. And now you've doubled the supply of retail space and the demand has not been changed very much at all. There's no doubt that economically, this was not well thought through, right? Because I think some of those kind of just base observations with obviously the the hindsight makes you go, what what in the world were they thinking? Let, let's, let's try to be generous to them and understand what maybe they were thinking. Because if you go back to the the 1950s and 1960s were at one point this explosion of optimism at the end of World War II. We were quite literally the only industrial, you know, major industrial economy not decimated by war. Um, we we nostalgize things like the Marshall Plan, but the Marshall Plan was actually like a massive 
employment boom for us here in the U.S. Uh, to create and trade. And, you know, we, we, we were, I mean, even when you get to like the 1980s and our economy is 40% of the world's economy, you know, you, you, you recognize that we had gone through decades where we were the world economy. Americans could have one wage earner and a family work a blue collar job and support a very high middle class lifestyle and all the kind of derivations that come from that. Uh, a government that could be very generous with social services, uh, governments that could be very generous and and very optimistic in terms of the public investments they were making. Uh, we had what Jane Jacobs called catastrophic capital, which is just like free flowing money everywhere because in a sense we had a lot of it at the time that we could invest in all kinds of things that were just crazy. And when you look at cities like this, small towns, I mean, my little small town here of Brainerd, uh, the thing that we dabbled with was taking our downtown and making it into a mall. You know, the malls had grown up out on the edge of town, had kind of, in a sense, gutted the downtown. At the same time, we were making investments out on the edge to have everybody drive everywhere. We were lamenting the fact that our walkable neighborhoods were falling apart, our corner grocery stores were disappearing, our downtown that had once been this like really amazing place uh, was falling apart. And the answer that we had was that we were going to put a dome over our downtown and make it, in a sense, like a destination downtown. Come to the downtown park and then come into the dome and walk around and do all your shopping. It was it was a gimmick, right? <laughs> I'm pretty sure The Simpsons did that. So <laughs> probably a, probably a Simpson episode. Yeah, but uh, but other places did this. I mean, I've been to Mason City, Iowa, where they did this. You know, put their put their downtown a couple blocks in. You know, they they put like a a canopy thing over top of it, so it's like a domed. It's a it's a downtown mall, is what I think they call it there. I think if we're going to say optimistic things about it, th this would have been the gimmick that they would have tried to get people to the downtown, as opposed to what my downtown ultimately did and what most of them did, which is tear down half the buildings to make big parking lots so that you could compete with the mall. Because that the the thought was, it's just a parking problem. The mall has lots of parking. The downtown doesn't. So if we can just like destroy half the downtown, we can have the same kind of parking ratios and conditions as the mall, and then we'll be competitive. In Morristown, they didn't do that. And if you go on Google Earth today, Google Maps, and you start looking around, it's actually a pretty intact downtown. Now they they routed the highway through the downtown, and then they routed it around the downtown. They have all kinds of like nasty stuff out on the edge. They have all kinds of things that are like sucking the life out of the downtown. But the downtown itself, they chose to do this kind of weird experiment of building a second story or a second, you know, a second level to it, as opposed to it feels like tearing it down for parking or making massive investments in parking. And in that sense, it's a novel experiment, even though it, in a sense, failed like all the other ones did. Yeah, and I I don't even think that I mean you you look at it on Google Earth. I actually don't think that it's a hopeless situation at all. It's actually kind of a cool structure in a way. Like it it's actually pretty interesting. I think there just needs to be some some more creativity brought in to really think through how the structure can be leveraged. I mean, I think of places like I mean, it's a very different context, but Utrecht has terraces and they protect people from 
you know, on the first level from the elements like rain and sun. So I think that there is something to be said about urban design projects and economic development. But in this is instance, it just seemed to majorly backfire. But now they have this structure that it sounds like it resonates with people as a symbol of the city. I think if lots of people actually lived in their downtown, the SkyMart might be a very nice semi private space for residents who are living on the second floors. In fact, I would advocate for making the second level mostly residential and maybe some offices because that bridge area could be kind of this like shared terrace area for residents. And I could imagine people up there kind of making the spaces outside their door um, their own by maybe having plants or flags or chimes and gardens and seating, things like that. Um, another thing is that it's like this very beige, very like 1960s, 70s concrete structure that, I don't know, when I was looking at it, I was wondering what it might look like if you brought in some artists to like paint it and do something really interesting um, just to like make it look cleaner and and bring some color to the downtown because it does. There's these beautiful historic buildings, but this concrete structure kind of covering up those buildings is not really helping. And so I think you could do something really interesting there. Um, and also there's this like streetscape that is there's like one part of the streetscape where there's like a right turn lane that runs a block and has like three arrows. I am so triggered by like arrow, like overuse of painted arrows <laughs> on streets. Traffic markings just in general, right? It's like crazy. You know? there, it's like, it's like three arrows, like all like, like spaced out like five feet from each other. And a downtown area should not have a right turning lane that spans an entire block. Like this is not a racetrack. So I, I think there's actually things that they could do with their streetscape and, and just, you know, rethinking some of the uses and retrofitting some of the building spaces that could make it work because it is kind of cool structure. It's just, I think it's just the way things are working right now. It's, and, and it is evolving, but the way it's working right now and has been working has a lot to do with, just very nuanced, nuanced pieces of, of this downtown. Well, let, let's talk about this place. And then I want to circle back and talk about this mindset in general, because I still see this mindset active in American urbanist conversation today. But if, you know, what you're talking about, I'm, I'm looking at the three turn arrows and you have a strode mentality here. In, and this is what a lot of core downtowns suffer from today, especially in small towns, which is your traffic engineer is active, prioritizing the flow of traffic through here. One block over is the highway, right? I mean, that's where you've already sacrificed this massive amount of your city to traffic flow. But on this street where you're actually trying to create a place your engineer has stepped in and said, nope, this place also has to be about traffic flow. So instead of having one, two, three, four, five parking spaces and a slower cross section, a slower street, we remove all those parking spaces. And now there's a right turn lane that extends literally, like you said, the entire block. We want to make sure cars can definitely turn right here. And then there's a bunch of like weird arrows. 
So not only does it make um, the street have, you know, the area have less parking, it makes the experience of walking through here and being here and being in one of those businesses much more negative because the traffic speeds are just higher and the emphasis is on traffic flow as opposed to building the place. There's a lot of that here. And I think you are correct. I mean, I, I agree with you when you're talking about the, the, the kind of negative feel that just the concrete uh, kind of overwhelming, it's, it's like you're overwhelmed with this concrete encroaching on you gives. I'm also agreeing with you that I, I feel like with a little bit of eye and some attention to detail and an emphasis on making that first floor successful, regardless of what happens on the second floor, could go a long ways here to making this really nice, really fast. Um, they've sacrificed they've sacrificed a lot of the quality of the space on the first floor in order to have this, you know, second floor thing that they've got going on. Obviously, the second floor won't work and can't work without a first floor that works really, really, really like overwhelmingly well, right? And so you kind of have to. I don't want to say cut your losses, but you have to kind of abandon the dream that you're going to have two levels of success and just make one of them really, really successful first. And then hope that ultimately the success of the one provides, and I agree with you, I think it has to be a residential success in the other. Exactly. It's just these like little things. I feel like that is the core insight here is that, you know, this isn't about focusing on all of it at once, but you really have to focus on, on getting the first floor right and making that a nice space. Other, it can't just, it's, if the demand isn't there, there needs to be a focus and the first floor is where you shift that focus. And there's just like, when I was looking at Google earth, I mean, it's like they, they are doing things. There's a brewery that has like a outdoor patio area, but because the sidewalk is so small, it like blocks the sidewalk. And so if, if outdoor patio areas are desired, that's right where those right turn lanes are too. So it's like, let's get rid of that whole lane for traffic and put parklets out there or uh, extend the sidewalk and just make the sidewalk really big. There's all these little things that I think could be done um, along, you know, various portions of the blocks. There's um, hanging baskets where they, they have like landscaping, but it's like, it's oriented towards the street rather than, you know, like pedestrians wouldn't see it really if you're walking along the sidewalk. So I think it's just like these little, just little details that are really important that obviously there are people who care about the downtown and they're trying things, which is really good, but there's, the detail is important. I look at these concrete pillars they have in the middle of their sidewalks. And they're very um, oppressive feeling, right? Yeah. It feels like something that in the Hunger Games you would strap someone to and then whip them <laughs> in the back, you know, like <laughs> it does like they're not, they're very negative. I even think like painting these things like a, a, a blue where there's a gradient on it. So it, it like lightened up as you went higher. Um almost like try to blend it in with the the sky and the surroundings. I can see them putting LED lights are so friggin' cheap right now today. I think just making that whole thing like a nice, like get rid of the 
the kind of street lighting and just make it uh, a marquee lighting around that whole thing. Um, you, you just got to do something to get rid of the kind of industrial brutalist concrete feel here. Cause it does kind of feel like you're in a, you're supposed to be in a retail district and you get that impression, but you also get this impression that it's like a, a kind of industrial zone, you know, cause that the, the vertical elements there are just really kind of unfriendly, unwelcoming. You got to soften it in some way. Yeah, it really needs to be softened, softened, and it's like, where are the street trees? I, it would be so cool if there were trees in strategic areas. I know it's like it's kind of hard to plant them with the way the street is designed, but if you had like on the corners like bump outs and had trees there, and imagine got a little bit if, of it. A, they've got a. They do a have a bit. little bit. Yeah, of that. they do have a right. little bit. But, but imagine if you lived on the second floor and you go out on your little terrace and there's like a big, beautiful tree mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has grown, you know, to the height that, that you're at there. I mean, that would just be really nice. And you might even be yeah, talking planters with vines, you know, planters with vines at this point, you know, to help some That's of that. That's a good idea. Um, I mean, those are nature band-aids and I think like that will help soften this a little bit. But paint, paint you know, is a paint bandaid though, you know, if you it's had just thousand like dollars worth of paint, to this. I know. But if you had a thousand dollars worth of paint and uh, $500 worth of planters and, and vines, I think you could soften a lot of this and, you know, take it from a, you and I are talking aesthetics now, but you, you, the, the aesthetics are part of what's keeping this place from, you know, that next level. I, I think there's a lot you could do here. Yeah, there's a lot of aesthetic things and like just the traffic, like making it less about traffic engineering and more about treating this as a vibrant public space where you don't want cars to move fast at all. You know, no stoplights, like make it all stop signs, four-way stops, single lanes, you know, two-way streets, just simple stuff. And if traffic backs up and it takes you a little bit longer to get through here, Amen. And they're looking like, at signs of businesses. That. Right. Like let's let's do <laughs> yeah. that. That would be that would be a great. If they really need to get here through here fast, you can go one block over to the highway through the middle of your city and ride on drive on that. You know, like Yeah. 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 yeah there I don't think this is hopeless. I think that there's act because I do want to be positive because Agreed. I, I don't Agreed. I, it's kind of an interesting structure and I think that they could actually utilize this in a way that just takes, just brings some creativity and um, just just modernizes the the uses a little bit. And that there are things that could happen that would make downtown successful. Um, I do want to talk about this concept that was brought up in the article about aerial urbanism, because I've not heard this term before. I think it is very on point. When I was a senior I think it's in college, a made up term, Abby. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. You just add urbanism to whatever, like yeah, underground well, just, urbanism. It, well, aerial urbanism. I, Marine I think urbanism. It's really, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think it's a good. I think it's a good term because, like, when I was a senior in college, I was really fascinated by the idea of gondolas and just like aerial movement systems and when they were talking about aerial urbanism, I started thinking more comprehensively about this like expansive concept of not being on the ground. Like urbanism 
that is not on the ground, whether that is these skywalks or gondolas, um, you know, Kansas City, Minneapolis, or all these cities that built like sky bridges throughout their downtown around the same time, right? 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, we still have them in, in KC. Um, I think Cincinnati, Des Moines, they have them. There's, um, you know, these like subterranean complexes. So that's not aerial, but it's down below Oklahoma City, Toronto, Montreal, all have like underground areas where you can shop. And and nowadays I feel like there's even like a lot of current gimmicks around having like Ferris wheels. I feel like every, I mean, we just got a Ferris wheel. A lot of cities are now getting these Ferris wheels, which is kind of a type of aerial urbanism. Um, yeah. It's just like experiencing the city from, from up above and, I don't know. That's just an interesting concept to me. So in Bologna, in uh, Italy, the wealthy families of the, I want to say 1500s, 1600s, I could be off by a century or two there, um, would build these massive towers. And, you know, it was my tower is taller than your tower kind of thing. So like, you know, you build a tall one and then the next family would come and build a taller one. But you can go up in them and visually see the entire city. And it is astounding. And they're well known for this. And it is it is beautiful. It's amazing. Well, um, Chuck, remember we did that in Kansas City at the did World do that. War yes. One Museum. Yeah, we did. That's true. And it was impressive. It we was went very, up in the tower. I do, I do think that, though, um, you have this intersection with the catastrophic capital thing where I think we have to, as city planners and as people who care about cities, I think we have to check ourselves a little bit. I remember, actually it must've been about 15 years ago now, there was a planner in Omaha who was a very, um, you know, considered a visionary. He was uh, up and coming. He was working on their Omaha Arts District, and we had all these plans. And one of the things that they wanted to do was build uh, Omaha's version of the skyline, you know, New York City's um, elevated uh, path. And I remember reading this article and seeing this thing and interacting with this person. And, you know, they were very, very gung ho on this. This was like the, the thing that was going to put Omaha on the map. Much like Morristown here, I feel like the heart was in the right place, but there's just a lack of kind of understanding and also, you know, the ability to spend other people's money on your dream is really like a pernicious kind of thing. If we, if we look where in the country multi-level urbanism works, I can name like, you know, really one place where it works well, New York City. And it works well in New York City. The skyline works well because the first floor of urbanism is full. When you're walking down the sidewalks, it's full of people. Like there's tons and tons of people. There's tons of traffic. There's tons of people. Having an outlet for that on the second floor actually works because it's overflow in a sense. It's like extra. You can go to the tunnels at Grand Central Station and the tunnels work with full retail and all this stuff. And it's under the street because there's just so many people coming through there. Minneapolis, and I love Minneapolis. I do. I think it's a great city. But the worst thing that Minneapolis did for its street life was build the skyways. Uh, you know, Jim, James Kunstler called them the gerbil runs. And in many ways, 
that that is you know they're a way to escape the elements and live in Minneapolis. I mean, I know people who live in Minneapolis who don't go outside. And you know, you can leave your place, go get in a Skyway, walk to your work, walk to groceries, walk to everything within the Skyway. Um, the sad thing is that post-COVID, as we see these places come under stress, while some downtowns have experienced a lot of stress, some have um, recovered and seen some of that come back. Uh, the Skyway system in Minneapolis, I mean, the last time I was there, which was six months ago, it is, I know people are going to get mad at me to say this, it is sad how little is left and how little energy there is in that place and how vacant it is and how vast and underutilized it is. Um, it's one of these things where as soon as you lose any bit of critical mass, it cannot support the amount of stuff. Minneapolis is burdened with supporting two layers of urbanism in the same place. And unlike New York City, there just aren't enough people there walking around to make that happen throughout most of the city. Morristown has zero chance to do it. I mean, it just there, there will never be enough people to support two levels of this. It's not a big enough city. It's not a big enough place. And so before we get like in our planner kind of way, like this fetish with well, what if we build the the High Line? What if we built, you know, I kept saying Skyline, didn't I? The High Line, I'm sorry. Uh, what <laughs> if we built right. the High Line? Yeah. What if we built the High Line in our place? I think we have to have more grounding in our own local economics and we have to have like more success spilling over. The High Line doesn't work in New York City without massive success on the ground in New York City. I, I feel like the there's kind of a core thing there that it's not the infrastructure itself. It's not the thing itself that makes the place successful. It's that there are people you need people. I mean, it's such a silly thing to say because it's so simple, (laughs) but like we need, we need people. (laughs) Yeah. I, I say this in, in a number of my talks, I say people are the indicator species of success if you study ecology, you'll say, how do we know that this ecosystem is working? And you'll say, well, grizzly bears show up or, you know, wolves show up, like it can support that. And then you know that all the other kind of like substructures are working right. And an urbanist setting in a city, the way you know it's working right is if you see people and you've got to have like enough people to make this stuff work. Yeah. And and I think that there's kind of because it's like a gimmicky approach, there's almost build like it this and they chick- will come. Yeah, it's a chicken and egg thing where it's like, well, we'll build it, they will come, and we will bring people to downtown or to this place that we're trying to revive. But I think that the gimmicky aspect of this does not create a sustainable flow of people. It might create a boom of people. They come for because it's a special event. It's something to see. Let's bring our family. Let's go do this. I think of the um, in Kansas City, the the, the main sky bridge um, or whatever we call them um, that I've walked on is at Union Station between the hotel and Union Station, and that one is utilized quite a bit because it's. It, that's where a lot of events are. It's a touristy area. There's a lot of conferences. It's it, it's a place where visitors stay and then and then you know go see Union Station and things that are going on in there. 
I feel like that is why it works because that is a sustainable flow of people. Flow of humans. Yep. That's about tourism in that particular place. If you're doing something like this and you don't have a, a tourist base that's going to be consistently coming, like New York City has both density of residents and tons of tourists. And that makes sense that the High Line works. If we build the High Line in Kansas City in some place like that doesn't have a lot of people or tourists coming, it's not going to work. So I, I just think in terms of the, the foundation, it's very important to build up your residential base of people instead of focusing on, you know, building some infrastructure gimmick and hoping that it will create some sustainable flow of visitors. Yeah. Success is the byproduct. I mean, the, these bigger projects are the byproduct of success. They're not the thing that creates them. And I, I like to point out to people that Rome did not build the Colosseum and then create Rome. The Colosseum was like the culmination of centuries of success of Rome and the Roman Empire. And then you get, voila, the Colosseum. I feel like, you know, in, in the 1960s, we looked at Rome and the lesson was, well, if you have a Colosseum, then you'll have all kinds of people who will visit and it will be really successful. And that's not how it happened. That's not how cities work. That's not how places are successful. And, and, and you can cherry pick. I mean, we can go around this country and say, here's the place that built the stadium or built the convention center or built the gimmick here or there and had it work out you know, for a period of time. And we can use that in our feasibility study to justify us doing the same thing. This is what, you know, I've seen consultants do this all over North America. The reality is, is that the only way to make sure that these things are successful, the only way to not be gambling with public money, the only way to not end up with, you know, the sad downtown underperforming that, that Morristown, Tennessee has is to actually incrementally build it from the bottom up. I mean, get, get a successful suite of businesses on one block, then make it two blocks, then make it three blocks, then expand it horizontally, you know, adding people, adding uh, people living there, at, you know, adding a, a more diverse mix of things. We want instant success. And for a lot of time, the money has been there for us to pretend we could do it, that catastrophic capital for every one place that we can point to that's been really, really successful, we can point to dozens, maybe hundreds of Morristown, Tennessee's where, you know, the ultimate end result was far, far, far short of the vision and far short of the capital that's been allocated to it. Yeah. Well, I, I have a lot of hope for Morristown, Tennessee. I, do too. I, I don't think it's hopeless. I think that they could do something creative, but it'll just take a different kind of thinking and and also buy-in from the community, the people who stakeholders that are in the downtown. And uh, I think that there's something there. It just maybe we can be, go there someday. And we should also, Let's do a trip. We and should. we can also go to Asheville and visit Joe. I would love that. You and me, a road trip. It'd be super fun. That would be um, so fun. We can take a picture with the sky bridge. Or SkyMart. Really cool. SkyMart. Um, I will say, if there's people from Morristown listening to this, which I'm sure there will be at some point, it's clear that you have a lot of people there who love your place. And you said that already, Abby. You know, I and and I think we can honor that and celebrate that while still kind of lamenting and, and maybe learning some macro lessons on what not to do. And then, you know, having um hope that 
things will get better. If you keep loving your place and, and can kind of humble yourself to do that next smallest thing, I think there's a lot, there's a lot to, there's a lot to work with here. Yeah. I think the sky bridge can be kind of cool. It just needs, just needs some love. So. Well, and if we um, do end up in the hunger games, you can strap people to those poles and hang them from the bridge and, you know, <laughs> it'll be uh, area 13 or whatever it's called, uh, area 12. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Someone will take like AI now and take this photo and be like, turn this into a Hunger Games scene. Um, Can we please? If somebody does that, please post it on Twitter. I'll retweet it. Oh boy. All right. Well, Chuck went there. Um, let's go to the down zone. <laughs> so, this is the part of the show where. We wrap it up. We share anything that uh, we've been up to these days, books, TV shows, activities, things like that. Chuck, do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? No, I think there's only one thing we can do in the down zone right now, and that is talk <laughs> about who's going to win the Super Bowl. Because this, oh, this yeah. show will come out Super Bowl week, and I think you know we need to make some predictions here. It's the biggest thing. I We just had a big team meeting and um, you know, I asked everybody for their predictions, uh, who who they wanted to win. Uh, I think we had five Chiefs supporters on our team. Okay. We had two 49ers supporters on our team. And we had 18 people who said, or like 17 people who were just there for the commercials. So okay. <laughs> that seems like the Strong Towns team, but I don't know. I'm assuming you're on Team Chiefs. Absolutely. Absolutely on Team Chiefs. I... I think the Chiefs will win, knock on wood. I also really want them to win because if they win and we have a parade, guess who's probably going to be in that parade? Serious? Who? Taylor you? Swift. Oh, Taylor Swift. I'm like, you, Abby, are they going to put you in the parade? Like, I would vote her. I'd <laughs> I come wish. if you were in the parade. <laughs> yeah. If anybody wants to invite me on their float, um, I'll definitely join. If Taylor Swift were in the parade, would that double, triple the attendance? Like what would? I think it would be a complete disaster in the downtown. Yeah. I think it, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, I think it'll be pretty crazy if they, uh, if she were in the parade. It's, it's funny because I know everyone's making such a big deal out of Taylor Swift. And I, I, I say that I sound like I'm being dismissive. Um, you know, it's a football game and she is a fan and she's dating a player and I realize, but Taylor Swift is kind of a sensation. I mean, I'm saying the obvious here, unto herself. I have these two teenage daughters and I'm going to tell you, do not care at all about football. Like don't care at all. Maybe sometimes they would sit with dad for five minutes and watch a football game just to be like, I'm spending time with dad, but do not care. I have gotten both girls to watch football with me over the last month because Taylor Swift. I know there has to be people in the like market analyst world that are watching this and studying it. I, I'm so curious, how has this impacted ticket sales to, or, you know, the cost of tickets to games and to the Super Bowl and just, Yeah. It's kind of fascinating to me. It is fascinating. And I don't begrudge. I mean, don't hear me begrudging my kids or anybody else who's now like taking an interest in football because they're interested in Taylor Swift. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that my 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of who would be the equivalent to me if they're like, I'm interested in this. And I'd be like, well, I'd, I'd show up at the parade to see, you know, Paul McCartney f- go by on a float. I probably would do that. Totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't really well, begrudge. So- I, I've heard that people like, I don't, I actually don't know what people are upset about, but I've heard that people are upset about something to do. I mean, I don't know. Who cares? Like, it's kind of kind of cool. She, like, she's she's at the games, and they like each other. And, and like, I don't know. Good for them. <laughs> so I have here in the office, I have a blanket that my wife, then girlfriend, bought me in 1992 or 1993. When I was in college, um, I was cold. My like house that I was living in was cold, and she bought me a chief's blanket. <gasps> yeah, and you were and like, I have, "I have to marry this woman." She <laughs> got me no. this chief's blanket. Okay, why did she buy me a chief's blanket? She bought me a chief's blanket because my at the time I really, I mean, and I do still today, really liked the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs, who at the time was. Joe Montana, former 49er. So it was actually Joe Montana, the 49er that I liked. I didn't really care for the Chiefs at all. But, um, you know, I was cheering for Joe Montana because I thought he was a great quarterback. So I kind of look at this blanket that I've got, like I still have it in the office here. And I'm like, is that a Chiefs blanket? Is it a Joe Montana 49ers blanket? I'm not really sure. I think I'm going to cheer for the Chiefs again this year. I've cheered for them every time they're in the Super Bowl. Um, mostly because Pat Mahomes, his dad, is a former Twins pitcher. Uh, back when the Twins were horrible, uh, I have his autograph in a couple of different places. Um, yeah, I mean, I used to go to the autograph parties when I was in my 20s, and I would get Twins players' autographs. And at the time, you could go and get as many autographs as you want because they were really, really bad and nobody would go. Um but Pat Mahomes, I mean, he was a you know a mediocre pitcher on a really bad team for a number of years. I remember when I heard there's this quarterback called Pat Mahomes. I'm like, wait a sec, he's not a quarterback; he's a pitcher. That's his kid. So Patrick Mahomes, the one I grew up with playing baseball, watching play baseball, is the father of the one who now is the. Uh, the pitcher for the Kansas City Chiefs. So that is I, I gotta really I gotta kinda go with that. Yeah. I, I think going with the Chiefs is a uh, a good bet. It's a good hopefully, choice. Hopefully I'm not eating my words um next time we talk. So Well, Abby, if they put you in the parade, I will come and watch. I'll come and cheer you on. And I think they should put you in the parade. I would love to be in the parade. So somebody listening, invite me to be on the float. (laughs) (laughs) Right next to Taylor Swift. (laughs) Yeah. I, I will, I will sit next to Taylor Swift if I have to, and that's totally fine. Okay. Well, Chuck, we're running out of time. So thank you very much for joining me today. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upsound. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Bye-bye. 